These are the words of Yahweh, the Lord, as written in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and his beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who walks, works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you as your people and we bow before you. We confess that we are weak, that our hearts wander, that our minds stray. We thank you, though, Father, that you are the one true God, that you are powerful, that you are gracious, that you are kind, that you are loving. Father, we ask that you would put your hand over this building as we hear the words of your scripture spoken to us. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us, that we would hear what we need to hear. Father, we ask that you would restrain the evil one from interfering. We pray for your protection. We pray for your word to go out, for your son to be glorified. Father, we praise your name. We pray that you would be with Tom, help him to speak your words, help him to be your messenger. Pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. At one of our uh, previous Wednesday morning discussions earlier, uh, when we first started this series in Ephesians, Bob Deffenbaugh asked the excellent question, what is the unique contribution of Paul's letter to the Ephesians among all of the books of the Bible? Well, in, in this outstanding commentary on Ephesians by Peter O'Brien, uh, O'Brien suggests that this particular letter is set apart from Paul's other letters in that it views God's gracious work of salvation in its totality. For example, in just two verses in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul says that God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ, all in the past tense. The goal of the letter is that all of the saints of God will walk in a manner worthy of our high calling in Christ. And in order to do that, we have to know what that calling is. We need to know whose we are and what we have been given in Christ. And we need to take account of those marvelous 
heavenly blessings that belong to us in Christ every single day of our lives. So that we'll live with clarity and power and great confidence, standing firm in the face of all opposition, including the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places and all of the opposition that we face here on earth. We need to know that even the future aspects of God's eternal blessings that He has lavished upon us in Christ are as certain as if they had already been fully realized. So instead of speaking of accomplished justification, ongoing sanctification, and future glorification as he does in the much longer book of Romans, Paul simply says, by grace you have been saved. His purpose here in Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14 is to give us a very concentrated accounting of how outrageously wealthy we are in Christ. As we continue to ponder this amazing run-on sentence in Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14, we are kind of going in the opposite direction from what I just described. We are unpacking what Paul has packed, right? And I believe with all my heart that God would have us do just that. I believe God and Paul would have us ponder every detail of this barrage of blessings, meditate long on it, pray it back to God. And as we see in the second half of this first chapter, as we will see, pray that God will open the eyes of our hearts that we might see this mountain of heavenly blessings in all of its richness. So we're doing some unpacking. Last Sunday, this morning, and over the next couple of Sundays. Last week we considered the amazing gift of God's adoption of us as sons, which he decreed from before the creation of all things. This morning we're going to look at another heavenly blessing in this barrage of blessings that Paul sets before us, and that is God's redemption of us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 begins with the words, in him. The, The most repeated phrase in these verses is in him. In Christ, in the Beloved, in Him we have redemption. All of the eternal blessings that Paul lays out before us are ours only in Christ, meaning in, through, and because of the union between us and Jesus Christ that the Father has created when He brought us to faith in Christ. Now what is the redemption that Paul says that we have in Christ. What does it mean to be redeemed? Well, I would suggest that there are two ideas that are central to the biblical presentation of this whole matter of redemption in both Testaments. Two ideas, and those are the ideas of release and purchase. Release and purchase. And the first (laughs) depends on the second. The release happens because of the purchase. The New Testament teaching on God's gracious work of redemption is beautifully foreshadowed through God's great work of redemption in the Old Testament, His redemption of His covenant people Israel. I'll ask you to listen as I read Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. 
The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the first critical aspect of God's gracious work of redemption in the Old Testament was release, liberation from slavery. And the second critical aspect was purchase. Psalm 74 verse 2 says, Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance. In that verse, purchase and redemption are used synonymously. God was buying back for himself, his people, to be his own inheritance. And we must not miss the unbreakable connection between purchase and ownership. The connection between purchase and ownership. God did not buy Israel out of slavery so he could turn them loose to do whatever they wanted. He bought them, quote, to be the tribe of his inheritance. To be his. To be his. Titus 2, I think it's verse 14, it says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's what God was doing in the Old Testament with Israel. Redemption is God paying a price to redeem Israel. And what was that price? What was the purchase price of that Old Testament redemption? Well, that might seem a little unclear until you look at the miracle in Exodus chapter 12 that finally resulted in Israel's release. That miracle was both a very severe judgment and a very great deliverance all wrapped up in one single event known as the Passover. The purchase price that God paid to redeem Israel was blood. The blood of a spotless, unblemished male lamb slain by the head of each household among the Israelites. You might be thinking, no, no, but the the blood was wasn't a price that was paid by God. It was a price that was paid by the Israelites to God. And if you have if you're thinking along those lines, you've got <laughs> you've got the destination right, but you've got the source wrong. See, throughout the Bible, life, the life of every living being that God has created belongs exclusively to God. Life comes from and belongs to God to the only one who has life in himself. In Leviticus 17, God told Israel that they could never consume the blood of any animal. That prohibition persists even for Christians who were no longer under the law of Moses according to Acts chapter 15. In Leviticus 17.11, God explained to Israel why they could not eat the blood of an animal and that explanation still applies today. That verse says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I, God, and the I is emphatic, 
I, even I, have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. A little later in verse 14, he says, the blood is the life of all flesh. God is saying to Israel, when you bring your sacrificial animals to me, you're not giving me anything. You're not giving me that animal's life's blood to make atonement for your sins. I'm giving it to you because all of life belongs to me. On that first Passover night, the blood of a spotless lamb was smeared over the doorway of each household to ensure that the wrathful judgment that God would bring down on Egypt that same night would pass over that household. The judgment that God executed at midnight that night, just as he had promised, resulted in the death of every firstborn male among both men and animals throughout Egypt in every household that was not covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And the dead in Egypt included even the firstborn son of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The purchase price that redeemed Israel from slavery to Egypt was blood. The blood of a lamb substituted for the blood of the firstborn son in every household. That price was paid by God to protect Israel from God. That price was paid by God to God. Through that judgment, that purchase of blood, God brought Israel out of slavery and he bought Israel back to himself the people that he called his firstborn. Now, I hope you're seeing some connections here with our redemption already. It's very important to note that the reason that's presented in the Old Testament for God's miraculous redemption of Israel was never Israel's merit. (laughs) Quite the opposite. The reason that was presented was always God-centered. It was never man-centered. Listen one more time as I read again Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love on you, Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. (laughs) He's saying... The Lord put his love on you because he loved you. That's his reason. He redeemed you because he set his love on you and chose you. A couple of chapters later, Moses told Israel that God was just about to bring them into the promised land after 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness. And he said, there's something that you need to have clearly in mind. Deuteronomy 9, he said, Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. You know anyone like that? Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left Egypt until you arrived at this place on the east side of the Jordan 40 years later, you have been rebellious against Yahweh. God chose to set his love on Israel to redeem Israel when all that they deserved was his wrathful judgment. 
Don't think for a moment that the Israelites who were delivered from that Passover plague deserved to be delivered. That choice to redeem was motivated entirely by God's own character and nothing else. But that temporary redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt to become bondservants of God as they had been created to be was a precursor, a foreshadowing of an infinitely greater eternal redemption. And that's the redemption that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1 verses 7 and 8. Now from what kind of, from what kind of slavery did this greater redemption free us? Well, John 8, verse 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. In Romans 6, verses 16 and 17, Paul said, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. We were all slaves of sin. In Galatians 3 verse 13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law. The curse that the law of God imposes on rebels like us is death. So this greater infinite, eternal redemption in Jesus Christ frees us from our slavery to sin and frees us from the judgment of God that we deserve because of our sin. If you have come to believe in the perfect person and completed work of Jesus, the work that He finished at the cross, as God's only provision to make you right with Him forever, then God intends for you to know that He has bought you out of slavery to sin and to the curse, and He has brought you into the glorious bondage of a child of God. He bought you out of slavery to sin into slavery to Himself. I'm going to try to find this quote real quick. This is from... uh, a marvelous book that Ron uh, gave to me in Kindle form. Uh, it's Echoes of Exodus, and it really it plays that shows how the the whole the themes in the Exodus in the Old Testament play out throughout the entire Bible. Just listen to this one paragraph; it's beautiful. This powerful truth is at the heart of Christian discipleship. The opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the most beautiful statements of Christian doctrine, asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is profound, exodus-shaped, and delightful. The answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, the freest people in the world are those who are owned by someone else. Service is liberty. Obedience is joy. I love that. What was the purchase price of this infinitely greater redemption? 
blood. The blood of a lamb. The blood of the perfect, sinless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. A ransom is the price paid to buy someone out of captivity. In ancient Israel, if you had been sold into slavery, your family could ransom you out of slavery if they paid a sufficient price to the one who owned you. The purchase price of our eternal redemption was the life's blood of Jesus Christ poured out at the cross as the only sufficient payment to God for our sin. Only the blood of Jesus could pay the infinite debt that each of us owed to God because of our infinite violations of His holy and righteous character. You were utterly enslaved to sin and to the curse of sin and you could do nothing about that catastrophic problem. And if you're here today and you have not come to believe in Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior, your Savior, you are stuck in your sin and you can't do anything about it. You can rearrange your sins, but you cannot choose righteousness. You cannot become a servant of God acceptable in the sight of God by anything that you will ever muster up. You must trust in the one who is righteous. If you do believe in Jesus, God purchased your freedom for you. And the price of that purchase was the priceless blood of Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Him... Paul says, in Him we have redemption through His blood. But God God did not buy you out of bondage to sin so you could be your own man or woman. And that's what that quote is about. He didn't buy you to turn you you loose. A A lot of Christians seem to think that He did, or a lot of professing Christians. He bought you for Himself. And guys, that's the most important thing that you will ever know about you. If you're a child of God, God bought you for himself. First Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20, Paul says to Christians, flee immorality. Every other sin is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And then listen to his reason for fleeing immorality. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God. In your body. Brothers and sisters, we who believe in Jesus now belong to God in every possible sense of the word belong. And that is the most beautiful, most magnificent, most wonderful thing that could ever be said about a sinner who's been saved by grace. We belong to the holy and righteous God. Forever! When Jim did his his excellent series on the covenants. I mentioned this before, but he said that one of the threads that pervades all of the covenants is God's intention in His plan of redemption to be the God of His people, that His people will be His and that He will dwell in their midst. All the way to Revelation 21. God saved us for Himself. 
That is wealth beyond measure, guys. Here in Ephesians 1, verse 7, Paul tells us that the heavenly blessing of our redemption isn't only a release from our slavery to sin, in other words, from the controlling power that our sin had over us, it is also a release from the penalty that was due to us because of our sin. In verse 7, the phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses is grammatically in apposition to the phrase redemption through His blood. Now, apposition, don't worry about that big word. It just means that the two phrases are talking about the same thing. There's just a comma separating them. We use apposition all the time. If I said to you, I'd like to introduce you to my wife, the fetching Mrs. Wright, you would recognize immediately that my wife and the fetching Mrs. Wright are the same person. And by the way, some of you are saying, I've never heard anybody use the word fetching like that. It's just because you're not old enough to have ever heard that. How old do you have to be? Really old. <laughs> and yes, I stole that from Hugh Hewitt. He always talked about the fetching Mrs. Hewitt. Um, much more could be said about my wife. So the equivalence between the two halves of that apposition is not, it's not comprehensive. It's not supposed to be, but it's accurate. Mrs. Wright is my wife and she's exceedingly fetching. The redemption that God has accomplished through the blood of Jesus is the forgiveness of our trespasses. If you got arrested today for trespassing, what would be the crime that you had committed? You would have crossed a boundary that you were forbidden to cross. You would have been in a place you were forbidden to be. And guys, the place that we went that we were forbidden to be is the is every single violation of the character of God that we have ever committed. In fact, it didn't even take that. It just took Adam's violation of God's character to condemn all of us. If you don't believe that, read Romans 5. And there's much more that can be said about this redemption But it is absolutely accurate to say that our redemption is the forgiveness of our trespasses. Jesus had to die. His blood had to be shed to pay the infinite debt that every one of us owed to God, to our infinitely holy God, because of our infinite violations of His character and His holiness. Our forgiveness could only be purchased through a redemption of blood and that had to be the blood of the perfectly righteous Son of God. Any proposed forgiveness of sins that leaves out the blood sacrifice of the perfectly sinless, perfectly holy Son of God would require that the God providing that forgiveness not be holy. A God who forgives sin without judging sin is not a holy God. A God who would accept an imperfect payment for the violation of His character could not have perfect character to begin with. Any God who would accept a bunch of animal sacrifices or a reasonably improved life or a pilgrimage to a holy city or a couple of iterations of life as an earthworm as sufficient grounds for a sinful human being to have relationship with Him is not a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. A God who would accept even the very best that sinful human beings have to offer as sufficient atonement for their sins is not a holy God. But the true God, the only real God, 
is. And that's really, really bad news for human beings since God's word says things like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is none righteous, not even one. Those verses are in Romans 3, verses 9 and following. As my dear brother Braxton often says to unbelievers, God is holy and we're not. And that's the biggest problem every one of us will ever have. How many of you have wedding rings or earrings here today that are pure 24 karat gold? I can answer that question, none of you. You know why? Because 24 karat, pure 24 karat gold is too soft. It's too malleable to put into things that are for common use like jewelry. You bang it around a little bit, it just mashes. What happens to pure 24 karat gold as soon as you bind it together with alloys to make it harder. Two things. It stops being pure and it's worth a whole lot less. Friends, that'll never happen to God. The one true God is perfect in holiness and righteousness and purity and He never changes. First John 1 verse 5 says, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. He cannot be bound together in any way with anyone or anything that is not as perfect in holiness and righteousness and all of His other attributes as He is. If He could, He wouldn't be who He is. The single greatest difference between all the false religions that men have contrived and the truth concerning the one true God is this. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. God cannot grade on the curve because if He did, He would not be who He is. And all of that means that a bloodless redemption won't get the job done. And the only blood that ever could and did get the job done was the blood of the only perfectly sinless, perfectly holy man who ever lived, the God-man who bore in a single day the full eternal measure of God's wrath against our sin when he, Jesus, died on the cross in our place. The redemption that God graciously accomplished through the blood of Jesus brought about the forgiveness of our trespasses. Which trespasses? (laughs) Well, it better be all of them or it doesn't get the job done. If it hadn't been all of them, God would never have anything to do with us. If Jesus didn't die for all our sins, he died for nothing. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. It's not when our pile of sins reaches critical mass that we have a problem with God. It's when we, it's every single sin condemns us. So if the blood of Jesus didn't cover all of our sins, his death was wasted. But fortunately, that's not what happened. On the night before his death, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he said to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And he told Peter then that the washing that he had in mind would make him and the other disciples completely clean. But the cleansing that Jesus was ultimately talking about wasn't about their feet. 
The foot washing was just a tangible, temporary picture of the perfect and eternal cleansing that he was going to accomplish the next day on the cross. The cleansing that God graciously lavishes upon us when we become covered by the poured out blood of Jesus through faith in him alone is a complete and everlasting cleansing. It renders us perfectly righteous in the eyes of our perfectly righteous God forever. Paul finishes his celebration of this outrageous gift of redemption by reminding us of its outrageousness, (laughs) just like he did with our adoption. Last week, we saw him do the same thing. He praised God for choosing us from eternity past, for predestining us to adoption as sons. And he didn't just set that beautiful gift before us. He piled on praise to God for how lovingly, how extravagantly he had given us that gift. He said God chose us and predestined us to adoption as sons in love according to the good pleasure, the delight of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. How much more can He say? Paul wants you and me, brothers and sisters, to know that God didn't just adopt us and destine us to dwell with Him in His kingdom forever. He delighted in doing so. He opened the floodgates of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus to make us His own treasured inheritance in order that, according to Ephesians 2.7, He can spend the rest of eternity opening the floodgates of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God wants you to know that He loves to redeem. And if you are His through faith in Christ, He wants you to know that He loved redeeming you. You were an enemy of God like all of us were. You were a rebel against God, but he sent his own beloved son to seek and to save that which was lost. He bought you out of slavery to sin to be bound to him through the incomparable purchase price of his own son's blood, his own son's life. And he wants you to know that that redemption is already yours. Right at the beginning, verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you believe that the full eternal debt of all of your sins was paid by Jesus when he bore God's wrath and died in your place on the cross, if you believe that your only qualification to dwell with our perfectly holy and righteous God is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers you by faith, if you believe that that gift has been given to you when what you actually deserved was hell, eternal condemnation, then you have redemption through the precious blood of Jesus Christ the forgiveness of your trespasses. You have it. And God intends for you to know that you have it. It's very, very important for you to know that because that's where holy living comes from. Holiness doesn't come from doubt. Holiness comes from certainty. There's a 19th century Scottish preacher named Horatius Bonar whose writings I love. He was from a very long line of Scottish preachers. He said this. He said, 
Christ the substitute giving his life for ours upon the cross is specially, like specifically, the object of faith. And he's talking about saving faith. He says the message concerning this sacrificial work of the gospel is the gospel, the belief of which brings pardon to the guilty. And I would add, I would say that I believe 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 8 put the focus exactly there on the sacrificial work of Jesus as the gospel by which we are saved, if we believe it. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, Paul talks about the fact that he didn't come with persuasive speech, uh, with superiority of speech or persuasive words of wisdom, but came knowing just one thing, Christ and him crucified. I believe those and many other passages bear out that the good news that we must believe in order to be saved is the witness of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross to pay the eternal debt of our sin. Bonar goes on, he says, And God has given us this gospel not merely for the purpose of securing to us life hereafter, but for the purpose of making us sure of this life even now. It is a true and sure gospel so that he who believes it is made sure of being saved. And then he says, Till we have found forgiveness, we cannot serve God gladly or lovingly. There's more to the quote that I won't read, but I'll read just the last part. He says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The life of a believing man is a life of known pardon, a life of peace with God, a life of which the outset, the very beginning, was the settlement of the great question between himself and God. Everyone here whose trust is in Jesus Christ has been redeemed purchased by God out of slavery to sin into beautiful, everlasting union with Jesus Christ. And that new union absolutely defines us. Through that new union, God owns us whom he purchased for himself. That new union tells us whose we are and what we have been given. And it tells us everything that we need to know about how we must therefore live. And it gives us both the power and the beautiful, joyful, grateful motivation to live only for Christ. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and God intends for us to know that. That's what the book of Ephesians is about. That's how it's arranged. Three chapters of what we have been given, what we with confidence and certainty as believers in Jesus Christ must know that we have been given. And then the exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of that high calling. And everything that follows by way of exhortation regarding how to live is absolutely dependent on whose we are and what we have been given. We are supposed to be confident that we have that redemption. It's possible to possess something and not fully have laid hold of it yet. And that's how Paul describes God just a little later in this passage. You may have thought I was going to say that's how Paul describes us. Well, it's true of us too. But in verses 13 and 14, when he speaks of our inheritance, we'll look at that more later, but the inheritance in Christ for which we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, he once again uses the word redemption. But... Now he's talking about 
God's redemption of his own possession. He's talking about the coming day when God will fully lay hold of that which he already bought. See, God bought us for himself by the blood of his own beloved son, but he hasn't received all of what he bought yet. And he wants us to know that he will. He will. That day is certainly coming. That day is our glorification day. That day is our official proclaimed adoption day. Read Romans 8. And on that day, our adoption as sons will be fully realized and we will stand in God's presence, not in these unredeemed physical bodies that still bear the residue of our old sin nature, but in perfect, resurrected, glorified bodies that bear no residue at all of that old nature, that bear nothing of the curse and nothing of the sin that brought down the curse from God's hand. 24 carat bodies matched up with 24 carat souls washed in the blood of Jesus and made perfect to dwell with God forever. God will receive unto himself the people that he bought for himself. And God wants you to know that. He wants you to know, brothers and sisters, that that day is coming very, very soon. That hope is the anchor of our souls every day of our earthly lives as the children of God. And that hope isn't a wish. It's a certainty. Dear Father, we praise you and we adore you for the perfect redemption that you have lavished upon us in your perfect Son. We confess with great joy that you have bought us for yourself and we rejoice in our new identity as bondservants of the one true God. Remind us often, dear Lord, of the greatness and the beauty of our glorious heavenly calling in Christ. And dear Father, for any who are here today who came not knowing whose they are or who came thinking that they could make themselves acceptable to you based on their own goodness in any measure, Father, would you pierce their hearts and show them with absolute clarity that they are lost and dead in their transgressions and they can do nothing to make themselves good enough for a perfectly holy God. They need the blood of Jesus Christ to be their ransom. Pray that any whom that describes here today would trust in Jesus Christ alone and be saved. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.